Good morning. I want to join Ethan in welcoming you today. It's good to see you. Trust you had a good Thanksgiving. A lot of people were traveling today, this weekend. A lot of people are not here because they're in travail from table pains, from turkey pains. But it's good to see you this morning. Would you take your Bibles and be turning to Revelation chapter 3? Revelation chapter 3. I appreciate so much Scott giving me the opportunity to share in his absence to bring the message to you today. And this morning we're going to borrow a text out of one of the letters to one of the seven churches. And it's one of the more probably most familiar verses in all of Scripture. The truths that are expressed here were originally written to a church that was so apostate in its condition so guilty of abandoning the faith that God could not deal with the church at large, so he had to deal with individuals within it. So let's walk together through the text and explore some very significant and interesting truths that are set before us this morning, not only to listen, but also to structure or restructure our lives accordingly, as God would do a work in us to fulfill his purpose. So follow along the printed page of your Bible. As I read aloud, I'm using the King James Version. If you have a different version, different translation, that's fine. But I'm reading from the King James Version. So follow along as I read aloud Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. And if you will, allow me to pause as we move through the reading of this verse for comment and interpretation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Behold, now volumes could be written about that one word alone because it swims with content. It's an overload. You talk about an overload of current on a wire. Well, that one word there is just that. It means simply not to look at, but rather to be sure that you perceive. And be sure that you understand, gaze with wide opened eyes at something, indeed someone who's remarkable. Not seen by mere casual or passive or even mechanical observation. But he says, behold, I stand at the door. Now that originally, initially, was the door of the church that Christ is addressing here. Quite strange, really. That Christ is addressing an issue here, a people, because here are a people who gather on Sunday, much like we're doing today in this assembly. But these people were only going through the motions, the format of worshiping God through Jesus, who then get up to leave, go out of the service, go outside only to find in dismay that Jesus is out on the doorstep trying to get in to the church where they were supposedly Inside, worshiping God through him there. It's the picture of a tragic, a terrible situation. One I greatly fear, one I gravely fear, is the situation and condition of many churches today. Going through the motions, indeed, many saved people, but apostate in condition. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. May I say that this knocking represents all the outward calls, all the outward beckonings that God brings to bear upon your life, my life. All the approaches of God from the outside to the inside of our life. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if any man, and that's necessarily any person, any individual, any man, woman, boy, girl, young person, if any person hear my voice. Now, the hearing his voice represents all the echoing inward calls and summons from the inside of you that match all the outside approaches that God is making toward your life. This is a perfect picture here. In this one verse of salvation, if you're saved, this has happened to you. If you are to be saved, this will have to happen. This will have to take place. If you're saved, you've had the approach of God from the outside in various ways, different ways, as well as the confirmation of the Holy Spirit from the inside, or you will have As I said, you'll have to have that take place if you're ever to be saved. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door. And that word open is an aorist tense verb, meaning the opening is done one time. And once for all time, forever. Because when Jesus Christ comes in, he closes the door behind him, as it were. And he comes inside never to depart again. Now, friends, it's certain that there may be, and oftentimes more so than not, there's a lot of headbanging that takes place between you and Christ. Awful lot of banging. But once he's in, he will never leave. Hello? Once he's in, he will never leave. Once Christ is in, he's in to stay. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him. And that, folks, is not triviality, it's not tenuity, it's absolute truth. That means, dear friends, that you're looking at someone standing in front of you who has someone actually living on the inside of him. And as I stand and look at you, those of you who are saved, I'm looking at other people who have someone actually living on the inside of them. Because of our having opened this door to Christ, the door that he's talking about here. He says, I will come into him and will sup with him. And that word sup is not the word for snack. It's not the word for finger food. It's not the word for junk food. It's the word for a feast, a banquet. I will come into him and will banquet with him and he with me. My, what an awesome declaration addressed even to you and I from the very heart of God. There is an universally shakening reality with an inexhaustible array of resources belonging to God that must clash and must connect with our life by way of personal, individual responsibility if we're going to rise above the consequences and the condition that sin and death have imposed upon us through our association and our allegiance with them. That is what we want to consider together this morning in our remaining few moments together. Would you in these next few moments give your best mind, would you give your best hearing and listening, be attentive, and your best response be given liberty to, to the truths that are before us in this verse? Probably most of us have seen at one time or another a replica or a reproduction of the famous painting by Holman Hunt, who was the British painter who in 1864 
gave to the world his great religious art, his masterpiece entitled Jesus, the Light of the World, but has since then become more popularly, more commonly known as Christ at the Door. It's a combination of two verses of Scripture. John chapter 8, 12, where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He that followeth me will not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And our focal verse here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Let's leave that image, Kevin, on the, on the screen for us as we go through this. Now, Holman Hunt paints in this painting, in its original presentation, he gives us a biblical Description to one of the most astounding truths that man has ever been privileged to know. If you were to look into the heart of this painting, right into the heart of it, and turn a little bit to the left, you see a, a large, heavy front wall of a building with a large door hanging in the middle of that front wall. Apparently a residence is being depicted. And the bolts of that door are rusted in place. Signifying that the door has never been opened or it hasn't been opened in some time. At the threshold of the door is a patch of brambles, a patch of briars. And from that patch of brambles and briars come long creeping tendrils of ivy that run up the wall across the door until they go out of sight at the top of the picture. And that is another way of saying that the door has never been opened or that it has not been opened in some time. Looking straight into the picture, you'll also see a captivating, a majestic figure who is tall, and he's a straight individual, who has around his head the halo aura of another world. And that is a portion of the light that's introduced into the picture. This individual is wearing royal robes, but has the look of sadness mingled with aggressiveness on his face. The left hand of this individual is closed around the handle of a lantern, which is suspended in that clutch at his side. And this, too, is another way. It's another source of light that's projected into the painting. The only light in the picture comes from this individual's head and that lantern. And it's Holman Hunt's way of saying that when Christ approaches the human heart, he must bring his own light because there is no other. The Bible tells us that Christ is the light. And looking at that light in that painting, we see that it falls in its glowing in a mild fashion in the lower left corner, lower left-hand corner. And there's the sheen of a piece of fruit lying on the ground. You can just barely see the top of it. And what kind of fruit it is is not identified. But it's Holman Hunt's way of getting across the reason for this situation being so dark and dismal. Remember that man at a crossroad back in the very beginning of things made a wrong decision. He made a wrong turn, scorned God, choosing his own way, dismissed God from his life. And God departed. And in so doing, everything went dark on the inside of man in sin and deadness. And if God is going to get back inside man, then he must come with his own light aggressively in love and appeal. All right, the right hand of this individual at the door has been doubled and shaped into a fist, and his knuckles are turned outward. And he's caught in the pose of rapping, and that's what this word knock means. It's not a mild sort of tapping, but rather banging on the door of this residence. 
Now, in the text of this painting, there are listed three objects, and they're offered for us very plainly in our focal verse this morning. There is, first of all, a house. There's secondly, an occupant inside the house. And thirdly, there's a visitor outside at the door. And it's around these three objects that our thoughts of these truths are going to evolve in just these last few moments together. I want you to consider with me very briefly. I want to encourage you to jot these down somewhere in your notes. They're on your bulletin just so you'll have these questions, very simple questions. And they're so amazingly simple that they're almost silly. But nevertheless, absolutely sincere in their goal to obtain a genuine response from every person here this morning. The first question is, who lives in this house? Well, the answer is as simple as the question. You do. I do. This house represents every person. This house represents every individual. The house is calling attention to every responsible human being on the face of the earth. And that means that if a person is able to respond to God, then they are responsible. You and I indeed are responsible because we are indeed able to respond. So this house represents you. It represents me. This house represents everyone. Now think about this house in terms of your nature, in terms of my nature. You see, your nature, your, your nature is like a house that has many different rooms in it. For example, you have a personality room in your nature, just inside the front door of your house in your nature. And this is the room where you rub shoulders with other people. Now, quite frankly, we, do, we don't care if the other rooms in the house are filthy, but we attempt to put our best foot forward in this room. Because it's in this room, the personality room, that we come in social, intimate contact with other people. So we try as hard as we can to keep this room as clean as possible in order to impress those around us, unless we're outright renegades, unless we're outright rebels. Another example is the fact that you have in your nature, you have a brain room, you have an intellect room. And here's a bombshell. For a lot of us, this is the smallest room in the house. Hello? The walls of this room are very thick. And once furniture is ushered into this room, it's very difficult if the need arises to get that furniture out and get new furniture in. You see, sir, ma'am, young person, your mind is being furnished all the time with furniture. Which is why it's so difficult to get furniture even of the quality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Inside that room to replace the previous type of furniture. There's also in your house, there's in your nature a conscience room. And this too is a very small room. But an awful lot of noise can be produced in it. In the conscience room there's a, as it were, a large machine which has many gears. And whenever you do what you feel is right and what you feel is good, those gears mesh without any problem. There's no noise made. It's hard to detect that the machine is even in that room. But when you do something that you know is wrong, then the gears of that machine grind against each other. And a terrible noise and a nauseating cloud of smoke emerges from that room. But there's also a caution that we have to take here in approach to this room. 
If you keep on doing what you know to be wrong, those gears then, even though they may grind against one another, they'll become so worn that they seem to run smoothly. It's what the Bible in 1 Timothy 4.2 calls your conscience being seared. In other words, if you keep on doing what you know to be wrong, your conscience will go dead on you. But there's one other room that is of utmost significant purpose within our house, our nature. Right in the middle of your personality room, your personality house in nature, is a room that the Word of God identifies as the Spirit. And it's a very odd sort of room. Because there are no outside doors. It doesn't even have any outside windows. It's like a, it's like a round room located in the center, the heart of your house. And until you are awakened to God, you never know that this room is in your house. Why? Because there's simply no level of entry. There's no door of entry at this level. The only way of access into this room is by way of a skylight that's at the very top. You see, the spirit is the compartment of containment for the presence of God in the human personality. And when Adam sinned, God sadly took leave of the human personality of Adam. And God went out, and when God went out, that skylight slammed shut behind him. And from that moment until now, every person born of Adam has been accumulating the filth of sin over that skylight, which makes that room the deepest, the darkest one in the entire house. Friend, that's why a dead man doesn't have any idea that he's dead in trespasses and sins. That's why it's a miracle for God just to convince a person that they're lost. But here's a bigger bombshell. Apart from Jesus Christ, every room in your house is empty of any substantial reality. On the outside, your house may look good. It may look fine. But without Christ, no one is alive on the inside. You may be alive psychologically, but in the area that The only area that counts, the area of spirituality, you're dead. Dead without Jesus Christ. All right, here's the second question, very quickly. Who is this visitor standing at the door of the house? And again, the answer is as simple as the question. His name is Jesus Christ. He's a traveler from Nazareth who comes through 2,000 years of human history to station himself against your heart's door. That's why we need to do exactly What this text commands us to do, and behold. In other words, take a good long look at Christ. Don't let him, this moment, escape from your attention. Because if you take a serious look at the feet of this individual, stationed at the threshold of your heart's door, you see that both feet have gaping nail scars in them. His hand that's raised to bang away for admission into your heart, the fingers of that hand are forced to close over another gaping nail scar where he was impaled on a cruel cross for you and I. Does it not move us this morning to realize that the Son of the living God has personally come up to the door of our heart and has stationed himself there, in essence begging us when we should have been begging him? This is the person standing at the door of every human heart as he seeks very lovingly, To get our attention to his presence there. All right, question number three. What is he doing at this door? Now, I want you to be sure that you're listening. Make sure you're listening. Our text tells us that he's doing three 
Three things. And there's no opportunity to miss this. Because we're told very plainly what those three things are. In other words, first of all, he's standing at the door. There's a point in place in time in which Jesus walks up to your heart's door, sir, ma'am, young person. And he stations himself there and remains there until you either, number one, open that door and let him in. Or number two, you say such a final crucial no to him. That he knows that there's no possibility of getting in and he turns and he moves away. He says, I stand. Could this be for you, someone here this morning, maybe a very first time for him today? Or maybe there are those of you who are here who've been walking over him as you go in and out for years. Notice, too, that he is at the door, which means up to the door. Which tells us that there is no great distance between you and Christ as long as you are a decision's yes away from trusting him and letting him in. Indeed, there is a great distance because of sin, but he wouldn't let him keep that away from coming and stationing himself at your heart's door. He loves you that much. That's how much he loves you. He is also, number two, knocking. And that word means that it's a continual knocking taking place upon your heart's door. And here's what that means. Sometimes his knocking is so loud that you couldn't miss it if you tried. Other times it's so light, it's so soft that you might assume that he's gone if you didn't pause to listen. How does he knock? Well, I can't tell you all the ways that he knocks, but sometimes he knocks through sickness or through stillness or sorrow or sadness. Sometimes he knocks through a song or a sermon or a service. Some aspect of shame or the seemingly senselessness of life or maybe the sympathy of a friend or the sharing of a Christian. He knocks and he keeps on knocking until you do one of those two things. You open the door and let him in or you say such a final crucial no to him that he knows there's no way possible to get in and he turns and walks away. That's what he's doing right now in this place, in these moments. But not only that, number three, he's speaking. He says, if any person hear my voice, why do you suppose he has to speak if he's standing at the door and knocking? Because you can have someone at your door and not know who it is. So he's speaking so as not to leave you in any doubt or question about his presence there or his identity. All right, question number four. What does he want with the person inside that house? Well, again, we're told very plainly that he wants to come in to us. He wants to come into our heart, wants to come into our life. That's why he's standing at the door and not the window. See, he's not content simply to look in on your life. No, he's not content simply to look in on my life. He does that anyway. In fact, he's doing it right now. He's reading every heart Every mind, every life, like an open book. And the glorious thing about it is, friends, knowing what he knows about us, he still wants to come in. We marvel at the fact that Jesus came and was born in a smelly, undesirable place like a stable. But, friends, he came into something far worse than that when he came into my heart. He came in and he cleared him a space and... He began sweeping, he began clearing and wiping away the dirt. 
And I promise you, he's still at work today on the inside. I've been born of the Spirit of God in my spirit, from above, out of the very nature of God. So that my inner life becomes an extension of God's life. That's what it means to be born again. When Jesus came in, he reconnected that light switch that Adam turned off when Adam sinned. And now my inner spirit is flooded with light. Everything I do, even when I sin, even in my sinning, I do so in the light. Ephesians 5, 8. That's what the Christian life is all about. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And when he comes in, he is the one, indeed the only one, who can create the doors of that spirit room. Jesus wants to come in and control you, spirit, soul, and body, inside and out. So that your body, your life becomes a display case for his life to be revealed. And when he makes those outward doors for the spirit, he then is able to walk out into all those other rooms that we spoke of earlier. And because he's the carpenter, he's able to build a new exactly what you need in your house to accommodate his presence there. You see, when he comes in, if you make that allowance... When he comes in, he then is a permanent residence, not a temporary part-time tenant. He comes in, remember, and closes the door, as it were, behind him and begins immediately to build from the ground up everything you need for him to live with you and for you to live with him. And he furnishes the abode with heaven's furniture. When he comes in, he makes it possible for you to fit the very heart of God. And then the last question, question number five, what must you do? What must I do? Simply, yet sincerely open the door and let him come in. You see, within the sovereignty of God, there exists his mandate for you and I to open this door of our nature, our heart, our life. You cannot open it without his permission. But somehow, and it can't be explained, I can't explain it, he will not open this door without your will. It will not stand ajar. It won't open by incident or accident. Neither will Christ tear this door down. He won't kick this door in. He very lovingly asks you and I to open the door. You see, in Holman Hunt's original painting, there's no door handle visible. Simply because it's on the inside of the house. So there it is. The Lord God in the person of his son Jesus Christ comes to station himself at the front door of the human heart. And in the awesome interchange of God's sovereignty and our responsibility, one door makes all the difference in the world. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to bow your heads together with me. Our heads bowed and our eyes closed together. We're going to stand in just a moment, sing our invitation hymn and give you an opportunity to respond. If the Lord is speaking to you, but do you right now, sir, ma'am, young person, do you sense Christ's presence at your heart's door? Is he speaking? Is he knocking? You best hope that he is. If you've never said yes to Jesus, you best hope that you've never said such a final, crucial no to him 
that he knows that there's no way possible to come in and he turns and walks away. So is he speaking? Is he knocking? Is he standing? Because, you see, you cannot afford to leave a person such as Christ on the outside of a person such as you. Will you in these moments, if you've never said yes to Jesus, open the door of your heart and your life in faith? That's how you open the door, in faith and in trust to Jesus Christ and let him come in. To be distracted from this responsibility of opening the door is to sin. And if you don't open this door that's mentioned in Revelation 3.20, you invariably open another door. The door to continue on in sin and in rebellion and in indifference and rejection of Jesus Christ and his purpose for your life. Will you do this morning, right now, in these moments, what he beckons and what he begs you to do? Father, we thank you that you have come to our heart's door. You've stationed yourself there, and you're knocking, you're speaking. Father, we thank you that you've given to us a responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility to open that door by faith and trust you. And let you come in and be Lord of our life, the master of our house, our nature, our heart. Father, if there's someone here, if there, if there's several here, maybe, who've never said yes to Jesus. Father, it's our prayer, those of us who have opened this door, and let Jesus come in. It's our prayer, our desire, that they would respond today. Open the door and say, yes, Jesus, come in. Be Lord of my life, Lord of all, about my life, all that my life is. I trust you. I don't understand what all it means, but I trust you because you do know what it means. You know what it's all about. Father, have your will and your way in our life, our heart, our nature today. As we simply do what you place in our heart to do. In Christ's name, just in his name we pray together. Amen. Would you stand together with me? Ethan is going to lead us as we sing. I'll be singing. I'll be standing out the front if I can. Help you in any way. Pray with you. Maybe you just want to come. Maybe you want to bring someone else with you and just kneel and pray. Whatever it might be, just be obedient to what he places in your heart to do.